This is the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast, where we discuss all things crypto-related. Your host, Kieran Ryan. The harm caused by bad actors in the crypto space is often hard to calculate. The recent AfriCrypt hack of at least 200 million rand, which many believe was not a hack at all and was perhaps something more sinister, has again brought suspicion and unwanted attention on the good hats operating in the space. There is a fear that regulators will overreact and come down hard on crypto asset service providers instead of taking a more delicate touch. It doesn't help South Africa's standing in the world that two big crypto scams or failures, depending on your viewpoint, because we still don't know into which bucket to place AfriCrypt. The first was Mirror Trading International, which the FSCA, that's the Financial Sector Conduct Authority, says was a scam likely involving upwards of 29,000 Bitcoin. On top of that, we had the failure of the Ice Cubed crypto exchange earlier this year with possibly thousands of clients waiting to hear what happened to their cryptos. SA Revenue Services is starting to pay attention to cryptos, seeing the potential to add a few more billion to this pot. But how do we clean up the crypto space in South Africa? We asked Vihan Olafia, Digital Asset Lead and Partner at Mazars, to join us to discuss some recent developments in the crypto field. Hi, Vihan. Should we be worried that South Africa is seen as something of a haven for crooked or failed crypto schemes? And what impact does this have on our standing in the world? Hi, Kieran. Thanks so much for having me on again today. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Yeah, on your question, I think what has happened is unfortunately, but definitely not uncommon for an unregulated industry. Fortunately and unfortunately, we have this unique asset clause that has the ability to generate high profits over a short period of time, making it extremely attractive, speculative for speculative buyers, of course, but also to be utilized for scams. Now, fortunately for some and unfortunately for many, this asset class still remains unregulated, which means that there's no certified intermediaries that we can utilize for the purposes of purchasing cryptocurrencies, resulting in one having to do their own research before purchasing a specific cryptocurrency, but also using a virtual asset service provider to purchase those cryptocurrencies. So last week, for example, I did an interview where um, subsequent to the interview, I got a couple of messages from individuals wanting to know where they can invest in. So I told them exactly that. I told them that cryptocurrencies are still unregulated in South Africa, and there are no regulated advisors to be able to assist on, on where they need to invest or how to go about investing. They therefore need to do their own type of due diligence before investing, which, which sometimes can be a bit tricky. But in South Africa, we are truly spoiled in the, in the choice of, of virtual asset service uh, providers out there that we, can't, we can currently use. But as you mentioned, there's also a crook around every corner. Now, the problem, however, is that not everyone has a solid financial background with an understanding of cryptocurrencies, giving them the ability to differentiate between good investments or scam, hence this need for regulations. Uh, so the lack of regulations due to some extent puts South Africans on the back foot. And the reason why I say this is that I did a fair amount with corporate clients and want to put up structures in foreign countries, not specifically for tax purposes, but to be able to operate in a regulated space. Now, internationally, every country has had their fun in games and operating in a regulated space, but it's also time to grow up. We need regulations for two reasons. To attract investment opportunities to South Africa for individuals wanting to buy cryptocurrencies and also for external investors coming in to invest into these virtual asset service providers and exchanges and to make it a safer environment for investors to ultimately increase this financial inclusion.
Okay, you recently wrote an article in MoneyWeb on the need for proof of reserve audits. And if you look at what happened at Ice Cube, that's the crypto exchange that went down, is now in, in uh, provisional liquidation earlier this year. If you look at that, I doubt there'd be anyone who would argue against the need for some kind of audit of the exchanges. Explain what is a proof of reserve audit and why it's needed. I think to understand where we're coming from with this, I first need to explain the fundamentals of accounting for for virtual asset service providers. So if you take fiat currency or cryptocurrency to a virtual asset service provider, such as an exchange or investment platform, essentially onto their balance sheet goes the asset. So they debit the asset, but they also create the liability. So for any asset coming in, they have a corresponding liability. So the assets should always agree to the liability and the liability should always agree to the assets. Now, what we saw with MTI and Africa, of course, there were no financial records being kept. But further to this, the assets were being misappropriated. Therefore, if there were financial records, the assets that would be sitting on the balance sheet would most probably have been fictitious. Now, of course, bearing that in mind, let's also look at the Companies Act and the accounting framework. Now, the Companies Act states that one needs to produce financial statements six months after the financial year end. Now, in accordance with the International Financial Reporting Standards, or IFRS, which is one of the accounting frameworks we can use in South Africa, your financial period can be a maximum of 15 months uh, since the day of inception. So let's say, for instance, if I start on the 1st of January with my business and I have a, a February year end, I can actually have a an operation that runs for 13 months and six months subsequent to that 13 months actually need to produce uh, financial statements. Now, in addition to this, the directors have a responsibility to appoint an auditor to audit these financial statements and to issue an audit opinion on the company's financial performance and the financial position, which includes, of course, that balance sheet where we spoke about. However, this is not the case with MTI in Africa. An auditor was never appointed irrespective of the company holding millions in, in assets in a fiduciary capacity. Now, of course, once regulated, these virtual asset service providers will be monitored by the FSCA. So they will ensure that these virtual asset service providers adhere to these laws and regulations applicable to them. So all of this, in addition to the fact that it's also important to understand that in South Africa, private companies or propriety limited companies' financial statements aren't public information. So they aren't available for someone from the general public to observe or to inspect. So in most circumstances, if you're dealing with a company, you've got no clue whether they're compliant and whether they have financial records in place and whether they have been audited in compliance with the Companies Act by a reputable firm such as Mazars. Now, to try and solve this issue, we've created this product called a proof of reserve report. Now, the idea is to provide the current and prospective investors of a virtual asset service provider with some assurance while the virtual asset service provider or the exchange can also provide comfort to its investor that the investor's assets are collateralized, meaning that those assets that's sitting on the balance sheet is more or equal to the liability, saying for every liability of funds owed to customers that those assets actually exist. Now, we can perform these reports on a monthly, a quarterly, or annual basis, uh, but of course, there's no need for us to be waiting 15 months or 12 months before we, we actually are able to perform these reports. You can actually report a month after a company has been incorporated. So the two main focus areas that we have a look at is, of course, as I mentioned, that liability, making sure that that liability sitting on the balance sheet is, is complete, 
and the cryptocurrency balance. We gain assurance that those cryptocurrency actually exist and that the company, the virtual asset service providers, has rights and ownerships over that balance sheet. So how we go about doing that, we actually go down, we have a look at the, the blockchain, we aggregate the data from there to obtain a balance, but also perform specific procedures to make sure that the virtual asset service provider also has the right and the ownership of that public key address. That you're not looking at just some type of blockchain explorer and someone just telling you, well, that is my balance over there. We need to do more to corroborate it. Now, this report is then provided to a virtual asset service provider, which, which they can basically place on their website to show their investors and their customers that those investors and customers' assets are actually collateralized. Now, this is an extremely exciting product, which we hope will create a safer investment environment, further build the credibility of the crypto industry, but also keep investors safe by getting rid of those bad apples. We've, we've already had a bit of an uptake as well of this service offering, which the general public will probably be here about in the next month or two to come. All right. And are, are exchanges, you say they're signing up, are we likely to see them posting these audits online so that people can actually inspect them? Yeah, so the idea is for these reports to actually go on these virtual asset service providers' websites, and you can actually go there. The Mazars brand is there, of course, from our perspective. We have a look at making sure the report that we issue actually agrees to the report that's being issued on the website for, for those uh, clients to actually view. Your colleague at Mazars, Tertius Trust, he, he recently wrote that we need more and better guidance from SARS. Now, there's some aspects to crypto activity that are giving a headache to SARS. For example, cryptocurrency arbitrage, which you and I have spoken about before. Uh, also, investments into predefined cryptocurrency bundles of the kind that's offered by Revix, for example. You can also do lending and borrowing of your cryptos through what is called decentralized finance or DeFi. There's staking where you can earn interest on your cryptos. And there's mining. And there's mining for solo or for pool staking. There's all sorts of different things and ways that you can make money in crypto. Now, this is creating a problem for SARS because how do they actually measure this? Generally speaking, SARS applies the rule that gains or losses are capital in nature and therefore subject to capital gains tax if it's held for more than a year. What should SARS be doing, in your opinion, to better assist taxpayers in remaining compliant? Yeah, as you quite rightfully mentioned, there is a lot going on from different product offerings and, and type of transactions. But I think, first of all, it's important to note that SARS hasn't given us any clear guidance on whether cryptocurrency investment is deemed to be uh, capital in nature or whether it's deemed to be income in nature. And that's exactly my point. There's no guidance being provided by SARS. To also add to this, SARS creates confusion, allowing you to include cryptocurrency as a capital gain or uh, income in your tax return without providing you guidance on when it's income and when it's capital. They merely stated that the onus lies with a taxpayer to prove a transaction or balance is capital or income in nature. Now, SARS has made little to no changes to the Income Tax Act to accommodate cryptocurrencies besides from including and detailing a couple of definitions. They merely stated that the normal tax rules apply, which is extremely vague if you incorporate something like cryptocurrencies into the Income Tax Act. We therefore need guidance on a variety of transactions. And 
as we mentioned now, the capital versus income definition and, and whether to cl- classify your cryptocurrency gains as capital versus income. So we had a look at, at certain principles like the, the tree and the fruit principle, the tree being the capital asset and the fruit being the income generating asset. Now, let's say with shares, you've got the capital asset and the, the fruit being yielded would be the dividends. So you've got that principle. But now with this asset class being cryptocurrency, it's not yielding any fruit for this for this example. So you can't really use that argument to say whether it's capital or income. Those cryptocurrencies are bought and sold for the scheme of profit making. So it could be seen as income. And I mean, if further to that, if we look at Section 9, Capital C, in terms of the Income Tax Act, it specifically states there that if you hold a listed share for a period more than three years, it's deemed to be capital in nature. We've got nothing like that for cryptocurrency currently. So even if you look at the USA, the USA with the IRS said, well, at least if you hold the asset for a 12-month period, a subsequent to that is deemed to be capital in nature, which, of course, more beneficial. But once again, nothing from that from, from SARS. So other topics like what is the value of, of your cryptocurrency? Say, for instance, you're being remunerated in Bitcoin or you exchange one cryptocurrency for another or you pay something in cryptocurrency. Even though there is no realization to your fiat currency, what is the value that you link to it at, at the end of the day? So where do you get that, that RAND value from? Do you go to an exchange? But of course, not all exchanges have the same cryptocurrency price. That's where the arbitrage market comes from. So do you identify a primary market? How do you identify that primary primary market? I mean, in addition to that, investments into these predefined bundles, as, as we mentioned, there's no indication of, of applying a collective scheme of investments to make it just more practical to invest, invest in those type of of products. And of course, one of the big contentious areas that I think has, has created a lot of hype in, in the crypto tax environment is, is Richard D'Souza's example of, of lending cash uh, against your cryptocurrency. And I, I firmly believe we're going to be in a situation five years from now, and it's going to be in the textbook that varsity students is going to be studying exactly this example, because there's so many cryptocurrency or sorry, many tax transactions taking place from the initiation where you actually take your cryptocurrency, put it in for collateral, actually borrow against, and of course, the repayment of that as well. So there's a lot of technical aspects to be considered uh, from that perspective. But I mean, we firmly have the view that once SARS provides additional guidance and gives the people the clarity that they need, they're more likely to actually declare their taxes as opposed to to hiding in the dark. And and it becomes extremely dangerous from trying to rather not declare something and just hiding in the dark. Because even though currently SARS doesn't have access to the information regarding your cryptocurrency transactions and your trades and so on, two years down the line, it might be a different story. And and people have this misconception if SARS identifies the issue that they can only go back five years, which is not the case. If they have identified uh, situations where you underdeclared your income, they can go back as far as possible. And of course, now, if you want to set the rule state and go through a voluntary disclosure program that you actually go to source, say cards on the table, this is what, what I earn, but I omitted to, to include this in my taxable income. And you can follow that without paying any penalties. But if SARS already starts questioning a specific tax year or specific transaction, you lose that right to actually perform a VDP, a voluntary disclosure program. 
We've had a lot of discussion in recent times around crypto arbitrage. And for people who don't know, that's where you're buying crypto assets like Bitcoin on an overseas exchange at one price and selling it at a higher price in South Africa. Now, that's been a staple of crypto investment in South Africa for years, though the crypto arbitrage profit has declined from around 4 to 5% to about 1% to 3% in recent years. And we're hearing from crypto arbitrage service providers that SARS has made it more difficult for you to use your foreign investment allowance for this purpose. Is that what you're hearing from your clients? Honestly, I don't think SARS is, is purposefully making it more difficult for investors, but I think it's more a case of how this industry has boomed, resulting in a lot more people applying for these foreign investment allowances, uh, which has put SARS under pressure from a resourcing perspective. Now, this, of course, has had a major impact on individuals wanting to make use of their foreign investment allowances for purposes of arbitrage. So it, it does create a, a bit of an issue. But maybe just let's take a step back and just have a look at, at a, a foreign investment allowance and a single discretion allowance. So for those that don't know, a single discretion allowance is an allowance of a million rand that you can use at your own discretion to either take cash out of the country that you usually do for holidays or to make foreign investments. Now, once that million rand has been utilized, you go on to your foreign investment allowance where you're able to, to obtain an allowance for, for 10 million rand. But you need to actually apply for that going through uh, SARS's e-filing profile, seeing that they facilitate this on behalf of the South African Reserve Bank to actually apply. And then you need to provide information such as the last three years balance sheets and, of course, supporting documentation for the, the funds that you want to take overseas. Also, extremely important to note that a single discretion allowance runs on calendar years. So from the 1st of January to the 31st of December, where a foreign investment allowance runs on a 12-month period. So that could run from the 10th of March 2021 to the 9th of March 2022. Now, it's also extremely important for people that utilize these allowances to also remember at a certain point in stage, us as Africans will be able to travel again and we need to spend uh, cash overseas. And for that, we're going to need our, uh, our discretion allowance or foreign investment allowance. So it's always important to make sure not to utilize the entire allowance. So I think just back to from a practical point of view. So towards the end of 2020, a foreign investment allowance might have taken one to five days to obtain approval, but currently it takes in excess of a month. So SARS has 21 days, uh, working days, of course, uh, turnaround time to respond on an application. But most cases, we found that they take more than 21 days, so which results in us having to, to pick up the phone and call SARS or visit a branch. And from there, they say they've got 48 hours to respond from that, which they usually don't do as well. And, and this creates a frustration for, for people wanting to, to use the foreign investment allowance for arbitrage purposes. And the reason I say that and to understand that is, let's say, for example, you've got 100,000 rand cash that you want to do arbitrage with. If it's going to take a month for every single foreign investment allowance to be approved, you'll essentially only be able to do 1.2 million rands worth of arbitrage in a 12-month period. But if, for example, your foreign investment allowances are approved every five days, uh, you can obtain a total foreign investment allowance of about 7.3 million. So it makes a hell of a difference with the turnaround time from SARS's perspective. Now, in addition to this, we've seen also rejection of applications without specific details why these applications are being rejected, which also adds to the frustration. In my view, arbitrage should be made easier 
and do away with these limits because of the positive impact it has on the economy. With each arbitrage loop, economic activities are being created, but at the same time, taxable income is being generated, both of which has a positive impact on South Africa. Now, I honestly think it would be worthwhile for regulators to revisit these limitations currently in place and design specific rules applicable to arbitrage. There seems to be a viewpoint amongst some in SARS and regulators outside of SARS that when you purchase cryptos, your capital is leaving South Africa. That's not really true, is it? Yeah, this is an extremely contentious topic because I feel that comments are being made and opinions are being issued without the South African Reserve Bank or individuals understanding the technical side of these assets. The, the product of cryptocurrency isn't housed anywhere. It's not linked to a specific country. It's situated on the blockchain that is held on the internet. Now, the South African Reserve Bank recently stated that you're allowed to use your debit or credit card when purchasing cryptocurrency uh, off of foreign exchanges because it's in contravention with the current exchange control rules uh, and your capital would be seen as, as leaving the country. But you were ever able to to send the EFT from your bank account to your uh, your exchange's bank account, purchase the cryptocurrency and send that abroad. So it was a bit contradicting, but I can clearly say there's a lack of understanding when these rules or views are thought out. And the reason I say this is when you look at how cryptocurrency exchanges are structured from a group structure perspective and from a custodian perspective, uh, that needs to be taken into account. Now, virtual asset service providers hold their cryptocurrencies either on-chain, meaning directly on the blockchain or on the internet, or in offshore custody solutions, which in my experience, majority of the time, that's somewhere in the US. But that custodian also holds it on-chain and essentially on, on the internet. And I think if you even think about in, in South African money terms, the African rand, I think something like 97% of the South African rand is also stored virtually with, with a, a limited number of nodes. So the only real difference is the location of the institution holding the funds and administrating it. So to, to be able to say that buying or selling cryptocurrency is moving it from one country to another, I don't think it's accurate. You know, if you're moving funds and actually if I call it asset domicile to a country, it's almost like moving money along along the x-axle, where where cryptocurrency and intellectual property and intangible assets would be moving across the, the y-axle. There's no specific country that, that can be linked to the domiciles that, that, that specific assets. So I feel that regulators need to further apply their minds because I don't think it's a clear cut as just saying purchasing cryptos can be seen as as your capital leaving South Africa. And, and we also, it could be contradicting to other similar type of transactions at the end of the day. All right, just very quickly, I spoke to the FSCA in the last week to see when we might expect to see some regulations. And they tell me hopefully before the end of the year. What would you like to see in the regulations other than what we already know is likely to become law? For example, that crypto asset service providers will be roped into the FISA Act, that's the Financial Advisory and Intermediary Services Act and that they'll have to be licensed under this same FISA Act. What would you like to see? To be honest, I'd be happy to see any type of regulations surrounding cryptocurrencies and the industry as a whole. But 
over regulation, shouldn't stifle innovation and, and business operations of our current virtual asset service providers in South Africa. So when regulations are imposed, I like to see them take a pragmatic and a, and a practical approach when implementing. Now, of course, once regulations are imposed by the FSCA, they need to to make sure and, and to focus on, on cleaning up the industries a bit as well and weeding out all of these bad apples and, and, and criminals currently polluting the industry. Now, regulation should also stop unregistered advisors being able to issue advice to unknowing and uninformed individuals. From a regulatory point of view and from a tax point of view, I'd also like to see that you're able to create these fun type of structures under the collective scheme of investments in terms of the Income Tax Act, as I believe this is critical for investments into regulated vehicles, uh, which will further attract foreign investment uh, from from uh, uh, overseas, essentially. All right, final question, Vihan. Who are the credible players in the crypto space? This is a question you get asked a lot, and it's a question we at MoneyWeb get asked a lot. So maybe we'll just list off a few of them. Yeah? And just to be clear, if you're not on this list, it doesn't mean that you're not credible. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, let's try and give some people some help here. So this is definitely a question that we do get asked a lot in terms of who is credible and, and who to rely on. And, and once again, as I mentioned, in South Africa, we are really spoiled for choice. So from... A, a, a cryptocurrency and arbitrage point of view, uh, some of the individuals that we know for a fact are credible is, is OVEX, uh, Currency Hub, Shiftly, um, and then from a, a from call it a virtual asset service providers, exchanges and, and, and investment platforms, uh, the likes of Luno, Altcoin Trader, Bala, uh, Revex, uh, Bitfund, Cape uh, Crypto is also a new exchange making it through the ropes, Invictus Capital, and of course also Zargo. Um, but yeah, I'm not sure if you're also aware of a couple, uh, Kieran, that you've spoken to. Bitfund, EC10, did you count any of those? CoinDirect, Easy Crypto, Currency Hub, those are the ones. Some of them, some of them servicing specifically the, the crypto arbitrage space, and some of them would be exchanges where you can buy cryptocurrencies, generally speaking. But uh, yeah, okay, I think we've done uh, some justice there. And as I said, if we haven't included you in that list, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're a bad actor, but um, you know, you need to shout a little bit louder. (laughs) (laughs) No, definitely. I think we're always looking for new innovations in this industry, especially in South Africa. Right. Okay, Vihan Olofio, thank you so much once again uh, for that very insightful Uh, discussion about regulations and tax and all of the the current issues and look forward to having you back again thanks again for having me Kieran always a pleasure looking forward to the next time thanks for listening to the MoneyWeb Crypto Podcast hosted by Kieran Ryan to listen to our other podcasts go to moneyweb.co.za or the MoneyWeb app and follow MoneyWeb News for daily updates.